it's almost like a vibe. Like I've realised neurodivergent people, and I've heard this in many studies, is that we often end up with a partner or a circle of friends that are neurodivergent because we it's like for like. We attract people that are sort of, without saying it, understanding because they get it. Oh, I was too ashamed to talk about it only until my son, the last four years. Like, like I very rarely told people because I was embarrassed of the Asperger's diagnosis because I, it, there's such a stigma. I'm, no, I'm not Rain Man. Um, I'm high-functioning, but I have these attributes and limitations and it meant I didn't I was embarrassed it was only probably since I had children where I felt then seeing my son struggle that I thought no we need to raise awareness of this something I learned in Nashville that I've tried to bring back with me and something I do sort of uh, discuss within my songwriting workshops with people and it's the way I I try to carry myself within the music industry here is the sense of camaraderie Welcome to Songwriter Trysts. This is an intimate podcast that is connecting songwriters from all over the world. I'm singer-songwriter Ray Lee. Music saved my life and I love talking with other artists about the power of songwriting and their journey to where they are today. This is a safe space to share stories, lessons and emotions, all the great things that build an amazing song. Please support the podcast by subscribing or you can buy us a coffee all through the website songwritertrists.com. Sue Ray, how you doing? Welcome to Songwriter Trists. Thank you for having me. This is so, I love what you're doing and this is fun to be here. Yeah, I, I love doing it too. It's, it's educational for me, which is why it started and I've realised that I don't know if I'll ever know enough about songwriting. <laughs> but you... Um, like I, just reading your bio, like you've done so much, you've done, like lived my dream life. So <laughs> tell me, tell me a little bit about who you are and where you come from. Let's just start with the basics and work out how we got this amazing journey. Yeah. Well, at the start, I'm a proud Vermilaroi woman. Uh, I currently, I was born in Toowoomba up in uh, Jaibal, Jarawa country. Um, I have spent my youth my dad is obviously a musician and he used to be the chair of the Toowoomba Country Music Club. So from a very early age, I was just immersed in music. It was my life. It wasn't just a hobby for me. Like my dad's a very prolific musician. He was a guitar teacher. He owned a music shop. He played in a couple of bands. So for me, a weekend usually consisted of going to some kind of outdoor gig followed by going to the pub to watch his band play, you know, and we didn't do cricket or football matches on the weekends but we we did music and that was just normal life for me so I think music I I saw him making a living from it and that it was that was an option so I didn't really plan for anything other than that I'd probably a bit stupid. How lucky are you though? (laughs) I was told that it wasn't a profession I had to pick something else to make money and live off. (laughs) Was the opposite I had to fight to get to finish grade 11 and 12 he wanted me to quit in grade 10 and go work in the music shop but my mum was like having neither of my parents having finished school my mum was adamant that no you're going to finish school Uh, Mm -hmm. although I hated it (laughs) I hated school (laughs) because in my mind I'd made the decision I'm going to be a musician so I just didn't I I love that I didn't plan I, I didn't have a backup plan but then mm-hmm. I also think maybe that was a blessing in a way, like not having a backup plan just forced me to commit to it. Um, 
I've had jobs along the way. Yeah, I've had to do, you know, like I came out of school straight away, studied sound engineering at SAE in Brisbane and then Mm -hmm. did a video production course at Channel 9 and then that wasn't enough. I was like, no, I want to get more experienced at the stage stuff. So then I did a certificate for in contemporary music at South Bank TAFE and that was a really great hands-on course because it got me meeting other young budding musicians and so I formed my first band at TAFE called Astro Girl, which was a bunch of girls and... Um, we used to go out and, and sort of started actually playing real gigs. So at 18 years old, I was out in Brisbane. Sort What's of your definition of a real gig? A real Being gig. Paid. Like, yeah, like prior to that, <laughs> I'd been doing like the country music club where you don't get paid. Everyone just gets up and does three songs with the backing band. And I, I did, however, miss one step. When I was about eight or nine, my mum put me into this group into a called Kids Biz, which was run by a lady called Michelle Snyder. And it was kind of like uh, Toowoomba's version of Young Talent Time. So we'd tease up our hair, put on pink lycra, and we would go to school fates and perform at the Carnival of Flowers and all these events. So from a young cool. age, I was professionally performing for money. So, wow. But then once I got to like 13, 14, it's like, that's not cool. It's, you know, I'm into Pantera yeah. now. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's not cool to wear I'm an pink. adult. <laughs> yeah, whereas now I've gone back to wearing lycra and teasing my hair. Um <laughs> Uh, full circle. Okay, I want to see that, just saying. Yeah, I'll send you a picture. It's hilarious. Full circle. Um, but, yeah, so music, I then saw it from, like, 12, 13. I bought my first pair of Nike high tops with my own money. Then I bought my first bike at about 13 with my own money. It was $220. I still remember because it was such an exciting thing to be able to pay for my own, what I wanted with my money. So I guess yeah. I had that concept so of young. working, yeah, working and earning money. So... School for me was just something I had to survive and get through because as a neurodivergent kid, I have Asperger's and ADHD, so it's titled ADHD. wasn't diagnosed mm-hmm. until my late 20s, but I always knew I was just different. Different good, yeah. different haha. I, I can know. relate to that. Yeah. I can, I can totally relate to that. It's, to, it's so hard. And now we're, um, you're raising kids, I'm raising kids with um, neurodivergence. And it is, it's challenging. Mm-hmm. I love that there's more acceptance, but then I still feel like it gets then put in a box and yeah. shoved to the side. It's great knowing and having the label, but it almost, you put yourself in a box then. And I find it can, mm. I can restrict myself by knowing. Sometimes I look back to when I was ignorant to it in my teens, I just sort of knew I was different, but I tried extra hard and I, it, it sort of forced me to be an observer of human nature and other people to try to discover the hierarchies in human, you know, friendships. Uh-huh. And, and I became really sort of fascinated by human the human condition. So I think mm-hmm. if I'd just been told at a young age, you're this, I'd have just sat myself in that box and not allowed myself to explore anything yeah, outside right. of that. So I'm kind of grateful that I didn't have that I'm grateful. I'm, I'm annoyed, but grateful. It's it's a strange thing. It would searching for answers. Yeah. It would have probably given the people around me more grace towards me. I think, especially being a, I was, I had. I feel like having both, having autism and ADHD, is like having a leviathan. It's like two heads of the same beast, but they they attack each other. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That the, the autism needs routine. It needs strict. Um, you know, rituals and things that you do to, to calm yourself, to get away, to, you know, cope with the things that you aren't quite understanding. But then the ADHD is like, come on, come on, I need to be out doing new things and exciting things. I need that dopamine hit. So yeah. I was constantly in this battle with myself where the ADHD would push me out into social situations that would then wear my autistic brain out and I'd go into overwhelm and shut down. So that's mm-hmm. when I'd come home from school, lock myself in my bedroom, crank up Pantera full ball, 
sit in the dark. Um, I realise now that the really loud music was a controlled environment because it wasn't, Mm. yeah, it's sort of, I couldn't hear people talking and I couldn't hear any external noise that would overwhelm me. So it was a fascinating youth. But I'm really You're adaptive, though it sounds like super it. adaptive, which I think all well women are, have to be in general, but also neurodivergent people have to be as well, um, mm-hmm. just to survive in a neurotypical world. <laughs> it's so it's so hard when you think differently yeah. to other people, and and even now, I, I if I'm honest, even though there are labels, like I'm noticing with myself and with kids, we can say it right, but people still don't really no. understand because they think differently. Their brains work differently. Our brains work differently. Mm. And to try and have like an understanding, like you, we're never going to understand how other people's brains work. We only really understand how our brains work. Mm. And then we love it when we meet other people, like oh, when we meet I you. Think, yeah. Then it's like, oh, you think like me. This is yes, great. And like, I think that's why each other, I, yeah, right? got you straight away. And it's, it's almost <laughs> like a vibe. Like I, I, I realise neurodivergent people, and I've heard this in many studies, is that we often end up with a partner or a circle of friends that are neurodivergent because we it's like for mm. like we attract people that are sort of w- without saying it understanding because they get it yeah um, they also feel we have a camaraderie compassion for each other. and compassion mm. um, e- we have compassion for each other easier because we know what it feels like to be judged and pushed aside for, for exactly. thinking differently yeah, Robin, and having having different superpowers. Like we yeah. have such great superpowers as well. Oh, yeah. Like Robin Williams said it once that, you know, the reason he finds, well, people with depression he was referring to, but I also think people, neurodivergent people, because I, I've heard the studies by the age of 10, a neurodivergent child will have heard 30,000 more points of negative feedback about themselves than a neurotypical child. And that's things such as, you talk too much. You talk too fast. Why won't you look me in the eyes? Why, you, why won't you stop moving? Can you just sit still? You're so annoying. You're so loud. You're so this. And you get this inner dialogue then that becomes the voices of everyone else you've heard. So, like, my inner dialogue then became, and still quite often is, there's something wrong with you. You're too loud. You're too this. You're too much. And the thing is, I was very bright. And yeah. I, I can sort of see outside the box. And I sort of, when people are in conversation talking about a particular topic, I've got a lot of things to say about it because if it's something I've been fascinated by, I, I need to tell you everything I've learned. I have this weird urge to share everything I know. So yeah. then that comes and out as... you've researched everything to the nth degree yeah, probably. which makes me kind <laughs> of... Which then people would assume, oh, she's arrogant or she's cocky or she's overly confident mm-hmm. when it was actually just excited to share what I've learned because I've, I find it fascinating. Um, yeah. But... Yeah, so my internal dialogue is always you talk too much, you talk too far. Oh, people are losing interest in what you're saying. Look at their facial expression. Oh, okay, trying to yep. read people, misunderstanding people, misinterpreting people. So, And then add that on top of being a woman as well oh, where we're being told that we're yeah. not good enough and we're not pretty yeah. enough, we're not skinny enough or we're too skinny or, you know, yeah. like, I mean, we're, we're being yeah. constantly put down as a woman and then add the, the put-downs of... I mean, how are we supposed to believe that we're actually good enough? And also, sensory issues. Everything. I couldn't wear high heels or enclosed shoes or bras with underwires. I've always had to wear stretchy leggings and baggy T-shirts and things that don't touch me. And so fitting in with fashion was always hard. You know, I was a teenager in the 90s when it was heroin chic and... You know, 501 jeans. I couldn't wear jeans to save myself because of the sensation of it. My daughter it. won't touch them. Yeah. yeah. And so it was... I tried, tried to because they're so cute. But Yeah. No. <laughs> so then I, I sort of attracted them to probably the goth scene, which was huge in the 90s. So all that, you know, the crow came out yes. and all these teenagers that were awkward and neurodivergent attracted to that scene. And everyone was so kind and accepting and the clothing was baggy, black dresses and lace. And 
<laughs> and totally loud music. And yeah, so I found my, I've sort of found my group of people and allies and, and within music as well. I found obviously a lot of neurodivergent people attract to the music industry because for me, once I, I was probably 14 or 15 when I started writing my own songs, I found I could express my feelings in a song but detach from it so that it's like, oh, that's just a song, that's not me, it's just a song. But really it was my way of communicating with the world. So if that makes any sense. And it's strange. Oh, yeah. In group situations I'd always talk too much. But when I got a microphone in front of me, it in a way is sort of like a medication. It, 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 It brings all of your chaos into just a moment where I look at that microphone and I look out at the people and they're expecting something and some, it's like a magic thing happens to me when there's a microphone in front of me. I, that's where I shine. That's my moment wow. where I suddenly I'm funny and suddenly if I get one person to laugh, I'm, I'm done for. That's like, to me, that's the best feeling in the world. So you're like, wow, they're getting me. And they're laughing with me, not at me. And they're understanding my lyrics and it's resonating for them because maybe I perceived a situation they weren't good at saying themselves and I'm kind of speaking on behalf of these people. And, and yeah, it just became, for me, my love language and the way I communicate with the world. So songwriting was it. That was it. I was like, that's my drug. That's awesome. Yeah. And and being a fast thinker and a fast talker, that's perfect for being an entertainer. Quick on your feet. Because no one wants to be on stage watching someone think. And we don't think. (laughs) We don't think. We don't think quietly, do we? (laughs) We just say. We just say whatever we want and then laugh at ourselves when we say something (laughs) silly, right? (laughs) And I cop shit for that. There's some people that really find it frustrating. Like My my own partner, he's the first to say, oh, you talk too much at that gig. But then just as quickly as he or someone else might have mocked me for that, Sure enough, sure as eggs, two or three people will come out of the crowd and go, oh, my God, I love you. You're so funny and I love your stories and I actually love them more than the songs. And and then I look at him like, well, (laughs) you know. I'll take it. (laughs) You can't please everyone. And the people Mm. that kind of get you, they're fans for life. (laughs) Yeah. And they're the ones that may not necessarily be your friends, but they're at every gig. They're the ones that download your songs. They're the ones that comment on all of your social media posts. They're, They're your fans because they resonate with you because you speak sometimes on behalf of them so I'm getting emotional because I know that yeah like artists like Justin Townsell was clearly neurodivergent and I would see him live and he was the same he was just he'd just slice his arm open and bleed all over you and and I loved that about him and um, where some people would say oh he talked too much at that gig and I'd think god I loved it because for me music and performing and, and all of that is a it's a form of connection Absolutely. Otherwise, why do and, we do and, it? It's not for ego. Yeah, I, I need people to talk a little bit, but I also, at the beginning of performing live, I would tell my audience that they need to tell me to shut up and sing. Um, <laughs> but my dad's a preacher and I'm like I, I, like, I felt like my gigs in the beginning were just turning into like sermons. <laughs> <laughs> so, so like as much as I love to share, I, I love to sing. And I think, you know, it, it is a, it's about finding the balance, obviously. Yeah. But I also get really frustrated when I go to gigs. And there's no talking. Yeah, it's just, creepy here's a song, to me. Here's a song. Here's a song. Here's a, it's creepy. Isn't but then, it? it's for like, me, it's creepy. But then <laughs> I've seen artists like that, and then everyone around me is just like transfixed and mesmerized, and I'm sort of left going, "What the fuck's? Going? I don't get this." So it's just proof that there's something everyone <laughs> we're so different. Yeah, we're just different, yeah. and what we attract to. Like one of my favorite artists, his album, like John Fulbright. I met him in Nashville at an Americana conference about ten years ago, and he was quite emerging at the, mm. just before he released his big from the ground up album. And um, live, he's so shy. 
I, he was awkward. He faces sideways with his keyboard and faces his guitar player and he just didn't talk to the audience at all through the entire show. And I was like, mm. ugh. But then when I got his album, I had to pull the car over and just fix the settings in my car to make it sound perfect because this was such a good album and I yeah. didn't leave my car for like two months, which is another thing of mine. I fixate on certain albums. But, yeah, I fixated on that <laughs> album. But I, but live he was, he was kind of average. But... Um, but then a band like American Aquarium, which I saw at the same music conference, they were so good live. The lead singer, just like I think BJ Barnum's his name, I think, and he was so connected and present and talked to the audience and told loads of stories. But his stories have actually become part of his shtick and the audience knew them all and they then sang along to every song with the lyrics and waving their hands in the air. And to me that was just a transcendent experience. But then I get the albums and I'm like, yeah, they're good, but I want to see them live. So sometimes you don't get both yeah. from one artist. Um, I guess I try to... Kind of you need the yeah. live one to make the money these days as well, though. So. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's great to be able to record great music, but if, yeah. if you're not able to sell the tickets, um, it's a whole other story. Yeah. I want to know more about um, your journey as an artist because, you know, you've shared so vulnerably and thank you for that yeah. around the autism and the neurodivergency because it's such a massive thing that we don't understand or talk enough about Oh, I was too ashamed to talk about it only until my son, the last four years. Like, like I very oh, rarely told so people much. because I was embarrassed of the Asperger's diagnosis because I, it, there's such a mm-hmm. stigma. I'm, no, I'm not Rain Man. Um, I'm high-functioning, but I have these attributes and limitations and it meant I, didn't, I was embarrassed. It was only probably since I had children yep. where I felt then seeing my son struggle that I thought, no, we need to raise awareness of this and be open. Mm-hmm. And it's hardest when we get close to people, isn't it? Mm. To, like... I put up a wall. I'm like, oh, you know, we, you can see me from a distance, but I struggle with close connections because yeah. they're the ones that are going to see those those little nuances and things that make me quirky. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, there has to be a lot of love and compassion there to kind of deal with my, my shit. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse the language. But it, it is. It's hard. Um, and then it can feel really isolating as well. So, like, it's about finding balance. But you don't need a lot of people to be in your inner close circle. Nah. You just need a couple of really good people yeah. who are compassionate. Mine's definitely shrinking as I get older, but it's quality over quantity. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> definitely. Um, I, I want to know about that process because you said your dad, so, you know, you were going to drop out of school but your mum made you finish or whatever. Um, where do you think that the real, like, the penny dropped as far as running your own business, being a full-time musician? Yeah. Like, and then you said the band and everything because it also sounds like you did a lot of study, which is totally classic of yeah. the condition. You want to know everything, I, be a professional. I wanted to know how to write better. But yeah. I also... I actually wanted to be in theatre because I loved theatre as a kid. I was in the Toowoomba Philharmonic Youth Choir and, and we did lots of plays and I, I always loved the camaraderie of that and feeling part of something bigger than myself. And, and then the singing was exciting. So I, I came out of high school, did sound engineering, video production. I didn't have the confidence to think I could be an artist at that point. And then when I joined Astro Girl, I was just the guitarist. I didn't sing. And then the next band I joined, I was just a backing guitarist in Last House on the Left. And then mm-hmm. after that, I was in the Fondells, which I was just the bass player and sort of sang. we would alternate who would sing, but it was sort of never really my band. And I loved that. I, I loved performing. We I cut my teeth in the Brisbane music scene, played loads of gigs. I, I sort of came up with bands like the Giants of Science and... Um, you know, Texas T and Jackie Marshall and Marty Lumsden and Sabrina Laurie. These are all artists that were all my peers at that time and we had a real sense of camaraderie because this was before social media and, and cell phones. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I found my people, but I did kind of hit a ceiling where I was just sort of playing the Troubadour and the Rick's Cafe and all the same venues around and around and I played Woodford 
and I'd done a few yeah. few little festivals. I'd been to Tamworth once or twice, but I didn't really have the confidence, I think. I wasn't aware that I didn't have the confidence to pursue my own stuff. And then I think I was about 28 years old and Jamie Travaskas, who was running this venue called The Troubadour, which has now become Black Bear Lodge, it was, he sold it and he then started The Junk Bar. But yep. okay. he... I turned up at one of his Tuesday night Wooden Hearts nights doing acoustic stuff and I snuck in without telling my band I was going and I just got up and did a few of my my own songs that I'd written that I'd never really had the confidence to show because they were more country and I was playing in sort of, you know, rockabilly and, you know, punk bands and stuff. So, and I played and he came up afterwards and were like, oh, you're fantastic. Have you got any of your stuff recorded? And I'm like, nah. And he went, well, I've got a studio. Why don't you come over and hang out and we'll just record some of your stuff. And I turned yeah. up and him and his his partner were there and they gave me a whiskey because I wasn't a drinker. Again, I'd never been a drinker. But yeah. I had a whiskey, loosened up, had a bit of a joint yeah. <laughs> and went into his studio. It impacts us a little bit differently, doesn't it? It sure does. It, it makes me, yeah, not good. But, yeah, and then he just had reel-to-reel recorder, like old school, read microphones yeah. Um, he gave me this really wow. nice guitar that, you know, I, back then I didn't, I wasn't really as much of a guitar fanatic as I am now, so he had a much nicer old Gibson and and um, we started playing and he basically just pressed record and said, leave the room. Um, I'm sorry, my mum, I think, has just arrived and is coming down the hallway. It's okay. I apologise yeah. for the noise. Um, I'll let it Yeah. So, yeah, so then he just pressed record and said, I'm going to leave the room. And then I started playing. Um, yeah, I just started playing. I did about four or five songs in a row, no click track, no nothing. I was just playing. And, um, yeah, and then turned off the recorder and he said, well, great, that was fun, you know, see you later. And it was about a month, oh, wow. a month later. He rang me and said, oh, so I've done some work on those songs. And I was like, oh, really? I didn't think anything of it. And that man yeah. in his genius brain when luckily I think the other thing about me is I'm a bit of a metronome. I think because yeah. of my obsession with like heavy metal and all that really percussive music and practising with a metronome, I could I actually play, I don't speed up and slow down. That's one of my superpowers. Oh, so he yeah. was able to get a friend of his to put drums on a few of the songs. He got Jane Elliott over, put some cello. Jamie's a beautiful guitar player, so he put guitar and saw and all these really cool instruments. And that's my EP, Best yeah. Beware. So wow. all the songs on that were first take, except the piano one was one I came back another time and we did that. But all the other songs were yeah. just me singing by myself, not knowing it was for any purpose whatsoever, and he did all the rest. What a yeah, and he gave it to me. And I said, how much do I owe you? And he said, nah, let's just do a CD launch for you here and I'll take a percentage of the door tickets. So he oh, never charged a, me for it. legend. Put on a night for yeah. me at his bar. And that, that for me was the penny drop. Having someone believe in me, I'm getting Thank emotional you. about. It. I love that man. No, um, <laughs> I love it. It's so beautiful. But yeah, I hadn't ever. I'd always supported everyone else. I'd had a partner for years that was in bands, and I always supported him. And then by that stage, I was seeing a guy in a, in a band, and he was quite shy and awkward. So I sort of supported him, and I drive him to band practice and yeah. be at his gigs up front and center. And to have someone yeah. go, "You're actually really good. Your stuff's really great." That was probably the first time anyone had ever really told me that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just, oh, your band's cool or this and that. It was your good. So I was about 28. Yeah. So the Best Beware EP came out 
Um, got a, a couple of songs got on some radio play. A couple of them are still on playlists and stuff now, like Amazing. on circulation, made it to some, um, you know, uh, c- compilation albums. So that for me was like, yeah. oh, I've, I'm onto something. That's huge. Um, yeah. yeah, but then... Again, I was having issues at work. Again, with the neurodivergency, I was str- I was a data analyst for Energex, so <laughs> lots of numbers. So polar opposite. Isn't I know it? algorithms yeah. and office life for eight years, and it got to the point where I, I think I got pretty. Um, the corporate life was not fitting for me. I didn't fit into that environment. Yeah. I struggled immensely with yeah. the neurotypical workers who found me odd yeah. and, and ostracised me, bully- bullied me by exclusion. Um, I fully got bullied out of the corporate workplace. Yeah. 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 But the boss loved me because I was so efficient. I could walk in and run the things and have it done by 11 a.m., oh, yeah. whereas they took all day to do what I did in three hours. But so they were very threatened by that. And That's probably why they bullied you. Yeah. I, I made the most sales yeah. and then, like, I yeah. just. And I had three kids and I was working half the time and still being more successful. Yeah. <laughs> Cause and, once the, you, and, they, yeah. and they're like, they hate you for it. Yeah, they do. They hate <laughs> you. They, especially older women who are in there like. Mm-hmm. 50s and that's the only job they've ever had and, and they see you as this threat. Oh, is she going to steal my job? What am I going to do? If I, you know, I don't, I don't want to presume to know what they were thinking. Yeah. But, yeah, anyway, so it didn't suit me and I, that's when that's I then nice went for the exploration of well, what the fuck's wrong with me? Why am I struggling with these interpersonal relationships and with some people I know and why do I find myself attracting to these kind of narcissistic bully-type people? Why am I... Because obviously the codependent, the need for validation yeah. and the... I would attract to those personality types. So that's when I started seeing a psychologist and I got referred to a psychiatrist. So then I probably spent the next two years mm-hmm. on more of a self-exploration journey and my music sort of... I was doing gigs and playing a lot, but it wasn't my main focus. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, I just got the shits with it and applied for a visa for London and jumped on a plane and went and lived in London for a year just randomly. Just was like, I need to do something different. I'd lived in Brisbane for 12 yeah. years and... Yeah, and then the travel bug got me. That was it. I realised yeah. the ADHD was finally getting um, its its uh, dopamine hits, new experiences, yeah. new people, new places. Um, I made some great friends. I got, and, and then I went to an APRA, actually song Australian Musicians in London Night, oh, held yeah. by APRA, yep. which was fantastic because then I met a booking agent there who then nice. for the last six months in London booked me all these really great shows. So I got to play The Troubadour a couple of times, Ronnie Scott's. I got to play The Full Moon. Uh, oh, sorry, wow. was it the full moon? I can't remember. But anyway, like some of the premier venues I got to play and then that's where I started to feel like a real artist and the guy that ran the Troubadour said, oh, you're one of the best I've had through here. And I thought, fuck, mm. you know, this is like a destination location. And so then yeah. starting to get some of that validation outside of my, uh, you know, social circles and peer groups back in Australia that I felt somewhat supported by but also somewhat limited by and somewhat held back by. I'd had... People yeah. I'd been in bands with, not knowing, obviously, that I was neurodivergent, I didn't know yet, really. Yeah. The, the passive-aggressive comments or the things like, oh, you, you over-sing, or people have told me you over-sing. So then that left me going, <gasps> so I'd stop singing. I over-sing. Yeah, yeah I over-sing. But really, I was just yeah. using the voice I was given, and that threatened them because they didn't have a voice like mine. So it was their way of suppressing mm-hmm. me from using my voice to its full potential. Yep. Um, we need those people around us to encourage us. Yeah, so I didn't get that level of encouragement, but still the little, I don't know, validation-seeking kid would just sort of suck up whatever energy they gave me, good or bad, and thought yeah. that was enough. Yeah. But after making yeah. some good friends over there and getting some validation, I came back with a new level of confidence. And, and then someone I met over there that's Australian, she moved back at the same time, and we were both like, no, we can't be back in Brisbane. This is too hard. And 
I did some shows and, and that, but I, it just nothing ever felt the same. And we yep. applied for the green card lottery <laughs> for that for America. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my mate Cameron Milford had been living there for about a year and he came back and we went out for a coffee and he said to me, so Ray, your stuff would do great in Nashville. And, um, and the same day I left having a coffee with him and got a phone call from Simon Homer, which he's a, a friend that um, he used to manage bands and has record stores and stuff. And he rang me and said, Sue yeah. Ray, there's this Nashville songwriters grant you should apply for. And I thought, that, yeah. that's really weird. That's two people in one day. And the yeah. very next day I got an email from Sounds Australia saying, hey, there's this Nashville songwriters grant you should apply for. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, comes in threes. Um, yep. Yep. Saw it as a sign, applied for the grant, was convinced I was going to get it. Um, didn't get the grant. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but uh, got an email from Sounds Australia saying, hey, we loved your application, and although you didn't get the grant, if you were prepared to pay for your own flights, we'll still put you on the same showcases. So I still it was for the Americana okay. Conference. I think it was about 2012. And um, so I just I didn't have the money, and I thought, oh, well, I can't really. So I didn't respond to the email. And about two days later, I got a phone call from um, Tyler McLaughlin from the Sound Pound. She does yeah. sync. And That's she's, how we met, isn't it? Yes, exactly. She introduced us. Yes. Full circle. So then she yep. said to me, hey, Sue Ray, I just want to let you know that I pitched some of your songs for um, this new TV show that's coming out on SBS called Time of Our Lives, and they've selected three yep. of them, and one of them is actually going to be played on the outro of the last episode, so that'll get 30, like over a minute and a half of airtime. So all of a sudden that was a few thousand dollars, and then Simon rang me and said, Sue, I've just booked you opening for Mental as Anything for a few shows for their South East Queensland tour. Yeah. And I went from having no money to the expectation that within a month or so I'd have about seven grand. So Whoa. it was, again, it felt like the universe was just guiding me. And then, again, the gig I did with Mental as Anything in Gympie, uh, it was my last show. I went to my friend Darren Henlon's house. I don't know if you know him, but he's, he's a fantastic um, folk musician, indie folk, and mm-hmm. I was hanging out at his house and I was just killing time and checked my emails and I had an email from the embassy saying, congratulations, you've made it through to the third round of the, the, the green card. Green card. We need you to come to Sydney to have your, meet, like, your interview at the embassy. And, yeah. and the date just happened to be a day before I was due to play at Parliament House in Canberra. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And I... I was like, this is wild. So I rang the lady who was booking my flights for the Canberra trip and I said, oh, look, I've got to be in Sydney the day before. And she said, oh, that's fine. We'll fly you to Sydney and then to Canberra. So then they even paid for my flights. So it's like everything. It was like dominoes just falling, like the universe. You couldn't couldn't avoid it. I couldn't avoid it. And then, yes, I flew to Sydney, got the green card. I was down there with my mate Luke Peacock, so we were doing a gig. He played with me at Canberra the next day, so we were in Sydney yeah. and we, we celebrated and then we went and did this amazing gig at the Parliament House where we were treated like royalty and they put us up in this five-star hotel on Parliament House property. Right. And, yeah. and I remember laugh crying in the shower that night. I came back to my room and turned the lights off and I had one of those Rainmaker shower heads, which was real fancy. I'd never seen one before. And I sat yeah, on the yeah. bottom of the shower and laugh cried because I was like... Mm. What is going on? Like, yeah, what's well, finally something's yeah, happening? Thirty right. years yeah. of feeling like I was in suspended animation, and suddenly I was go. Like it was was all engines. Do you go. reckon it was about thirty that just things just hit a couple of years after you recorded your EP? Yeah, and I also think once you put it out to the universe, now I believe the ancestors look after me, but they also need you to ask. <laughs> they need you to yeah. be grateful, and they need you to say, this is what I need, and they're like, cool, we'll make it happen now. So once I realised I'd like yeah. to go to Nashville, it was like bang, bang, bang. And sure enough, as you know, if you've been to Nashville, 
I remember flying in for the first time and looking over Nashville and I just got this, like, butterflies and this elation that I'd never felt. And I got off the plane and you come out into Nashville Airport, which is, like, there's a Tootsies inside and there was a country musician playing and there was rocking chairs that you could rock on while you wait for your luggage to come around the conveyor belt. (laughs) And suddenly I was... um, I just felt home. Like, I feel like I'd been searching for home my whole life. I think I've, because I've always struggled to fit into sort of society in general, just with my brain, Mm -hmm. I felt at ease and at Mm -hmm. ease I'd never felt. And then I actually was there for the Americana Songwriting Conference. So there was a bunch of Australians there and Carl Brody was there, and I, I met him there, and he was Oh, my the God, he's why I do country kind, music. You're kidding me. <gasps> no, he's the one that told me I should do it. I met him the year before he passed. Oh, my God. He's, like, well, he's my a, idol. He, yeah, you and I obviously meant to meet. He's done this because he <laughs> yeah. was so kind to me. Some of the other Aussies were all, you so know, nice. that real Australian kind of tall poppy thing. They were puffed out chests. Yeah, and they, but his sound. He was the reason yeah. why I was like, oh, maybe this is where I belong. Yeah. You know? like, he was the one who, out of all the Aussies, that actually was just really nice to me. And he was like, hey, Sue Ray, have you been to Nashville before? I'm like, no. He goes, come on, I'm going to take you to Roberts Western World. He told me about Nashville. Yeah. I was like, what's Nashville? I know. Oh, my God, that's crazy. <laughs> and then, like, within a year I was there. And it's like... Carl That's mental. Wow. Well, he took me... He was going to record my first album, but I mean... Oh, unfortunately, yeah. God bless him. He, um, he's now passed, but he, um, he took me to Robert's Western World and that was my first time in Robert's was with Carl Brody and he's just talking to me about his passion for country music and passion for writing and his passion for his partner. And I just was like, what a beautiful human being. And then he's like, I want to get a pair of cowboy boots. You want to come with me? And I'm like, sure. And we wandered up and down second Avenue and we went into this one place And it was a two-for-one deal. So him and I got a pair of boots each and we split the fee. And they're the boots I still wear on stage every time I play. (laughs) Stop, I'm going to start crying. Okay, I know that your time um, poor today. Yeah. And I feel like I want to talk to you again. So maybe we'll do a part. I've never done a part two in three years of this recording. (laughs) But maybe we will. See, I do talk too much. songwriting ritual. No, you do not. And Uh. this is why I said my podcast, because during COVID, my husband's like, you need someone else to talk to. (laughs) So, I mean... Maybe we just, I don't know. But um, because I feel like I really want to just find out so much more about you and and you run these songwriting workshops as well, which I just want to hear more about. So um, either way, I'd love to have coffee and talk more. Absolutely. Um, You'll never talk too much to me, trust me. But is there anything else that you would like to share just in case um, we don't finish up? I'm going to let you go, but I I just know that you have time restraints and I don't want to... Something I learned from my time in Nashville, like that was the first trip and then... I went back um, once I I got everything sorted back home. I then moved back about six months later, and that's where I lived for three years. Something I learned in Nashville that I've tried to bring back with me and something I do sort of uh, discuss within my songwriting workshops with people, and it's the way I, I try to carry myself within the music industry here, is the sense of camaraderie. Um tall poppy syndrome, that's a whole other episode we're going to talk about, um, yeah. that I think is one of the most toxic um, things that happens in the Australian, just in Australia in general, not just in music. I'm talking, I've got friends that are in the fashion industry. I've got friends that are in the it's engineering thing. industry. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's just a, it's sad. It's a sad mentality that I think is on the decline. I think the younger generation are onto it and people are probably our generation have caught on and we've been telling the young mob, this is not going to fly for much longer. It's just such a patriarchal yep. British colonisation um, method of thinking. It was a control tactic. Yeah. It was just how they controlled the masses. Yes, yep. exactly. And we don't need it anymore. It's not we helpful. don't. It's, no, it's not fruitful. It's not helpful. But in America, where they were pioneers, 
it was the other way around. So they had to work yeah. really hard to achieve anything. And if anyone was working really hard near you, you were not you were not threatened by it, you were inspired by it, and you would join them in that yep. journey. So I got to Nashville yep. and I met some incredible songwriters and artists who just came up to me after songwriter rounds and were like, hey, you're awesome, let's do a co-write. And I'd think, oh, yeah, whatever, yes. I'll never hear from them. The next day, a text, yes. we're having a co-writing session, here's the address, bring some chili, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was no threat. And I remember turning up at this, I did a mm-hmm. songwriting session with this one girl, Anna LaPrad, who's amazing. You should check her out. She plays like, yeah. she's a ruthless performer, plays so much. And she was performing. I feel like I need to interview all the people you've talked yeah, about. Yeah, like, <laughs> she performs a lot at Legends and that and, and Tootsies. Yeah. And, and she was like, hey, I've got this gig down on Broadway. Come down and, you know, see me play. So I walk in the door yeah. and I had not been in the door five seconds. And she's like, hey, everyone, my friend Sue Ray from Australia is here. I'm going to get her up to sing. And, and like she didn't have to do that, but she shared. Yeah. They share the limelight. They share the. There's no. They lift each other up. The, yeah, they lift each other up. So yeah, and the, I used to have a, an apartment in Nashville that I Airbnb'd out one of the rooms, and a lot of Australians would come and stay. Sounds Australia would tell everyone coming to Nashville, Sue Ray's got a room. <laughs> so um, nice. yeah, and they would stay for a th- few weeks to a month, and the common th- thread was that they would all be sad to be leaving because they were afraid to go back to Melbourne or Brisbane or where they were from because they felt unsupported in their journey yep. and they felt that a lot of people were threatened by their talent and not to be saying making out everyone thinks they're the best but it was more that yeah. I just come up against it like I feel like I don't fit into my community or people are mean to me or people kind of gatekeep me for opportunities because I know they're threatened yeah. by me and I was like this is not mm. just me I thought it was just me and I thought it was me and my brain feeling the rejection mm. but it turns out it's a common thing in a lot of industries but particularly in the music yep. industry with musicians from Australia was yeah, very different. It's going to be the change that we want to see in the world yeah. within our industry. Yeah. So knowing what Absolutely. I, knowing that and what I learned when I came back to Australia, I've been very committed to being open about talking about that, saying to people, look, yeah. I, and people, some people have said, oh, well, you just talk about Nashville. I'm like, no, I'm not talking about Nashville. I'm talking about what I learned in Nashville, which mm. I'm trying to bring here, especially working with a lot of women, especially like yourself, country, like in the country music yeah. scene, it's, it's sort of small. It's, it, there's not much room for us. And women I've talked to over a cup of coffee sometimes or at gigs like yourself where they lament, oh, man, you know, I really struggle fitting in with the cool kids. And I'm like, but who are the cool kids? Because I've talked to some of the people that we would perceive as the cool kids and they're just as insecure and feeling as unsupported as we are. It's this common um, thread. And I, I know it's changing and there's a lot of amazing women out there raising their voices about, you know, inclusivity and supporting each other and raising awareness of neurodiversity and LGBTQIA plus community. And I think... The two generations down from us, they've got it in the bag. I think they'll do great because I do songwriting uh, workshops okay. with 12 and 13 and 14-year-olds and they're wonderful. I hate it when people diss young kids because I'm like, no, they're more aware than we are. They're so much more oh, compassionate, so um, yeah. courteous towards each other, open, loving. Um, they don't have that patriarchal Australian baby boomer, like men have got to be tough and girls have got to be pretty. Like they're a lot more... Yeah. Um, just aware You're of... You're going to make me yeah. cry. I know. Yeah. But so, yeah, anyway, <laughs> look, so again, my ADHD brain and 75 tangents later, the point is no, is that good. as a songwriter, I, you know, and I still, I still, knowing all this stuff, have my moments of still falling in the pit going, I can't do this anymore. I feel so defeated and unsupported. Um, mm-hmm. But I have it's to remind... Coaster, isn't it? it is a roller coaster, and I have to remind myself to visualise what it felt like to have that sense of camaraderie and go, well, if I can't be invited in 
And Jen Mai said this to me once and I loved it. She's like, if you're not feeling like you're being invited in, create your own party. If you're not being invited to the parties, start your own. And I was like, I love you because she's American, obviously. She yeah. gets it and she spent yeah, a lot of time yeah, in Nashville and, and she also tried to kick off the songwriting thing here and, and um, like songwriter rounds and was supporting, you know, other songwriters. So yeah. I, I've never forgotten that. If you're not invited to the parties, start your own party. And I was like, so that's what I do. I, go, I build communities. I find women such as yourself. I say, let's do songwriting things and let's do a gig together. Yeah. And um, Delilah Rose is another woman I've met I'd love you to talk to who's just moved over yeah, from Perth. I love that. She's moved over. She's just a fierce musician, advocate for ADHD and neurodiversity awareness. An absolute, just a firehouse. She could just, she just burned so bright. And she's been in Brisbane maybe six, seven months. And she started the song, um, song cafe, which is a song round for like a Nashville style songwriting round for women. Um, she's having cool. her third one in a couple of weeks. She's trying to build that Sweet. community. So, and I think well, yeah. these are the people I'm surrounding myself with, with Ruth Gardner, who yes. runs the cave in, and she's a big advocate for female musicians and, um, See, I need to meet these people. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm, I think <laughs> yeah. you should interview them more. And I feel like I'm finding my community now, and I'm much more better at discerning who's toxic behaviour I don't want in my at my party. And mm-hmm. I'm surrounding Have myself boundaries. with incredibly strong, beautiful, talented women that are, that don't threaten me. I'm never threatened by anyone beautiful or talented, which is another. Maybe that's a neurodivergency. I see. I don't see what someone looks like. I see what they bring to they bring to a space what they you know if they're really beautiful but they're a total dirtbag I'm not going to hang with them um and vice versa if they have a chip on their shoulder and they're they're mean and I see them putting out that toxic shit to the world I don't want to be around that either um I have compassion for being a woman and having a bad day yeah um but there's a difference between having a bad day and then having an attitude like a a lifestyle attitude um yeah but you you know you are a beautiful and talented human being (laughs) like you are so inspirational and you can see that you've put in so much hard work, not just into what you're doing and what you're learning, but also like yourself. And like that, that is not like, that's brave. Like so brave to go in. It's like, what is it about me that I can be better and I can change? And rather than blaming everyone else, it's like all these problems, it's, you know, everyone else's problems. That's easy. Going and saying, <laughs> what, what's my dig? You know, what's up with me? And, and, you know, going, I can be better or I can understand this or I can manage this part of me and maybe I'm not perfect because we all want to, like we're all the hero of our own story. That's the acting yeah. thing that I learned. I love it because like, it's true. We all think we're the hero and we are the hero of our story but it's all about the choices that we make and, and the heroes are, are brave. We've got to be brave and mm. you, you are just so amazing. I'm so glad we got to have this chat. I know that. Thank I'm you so much. Oh, no, that's so. fine. My mum's gone to pick him up, so we're, we're fine. Aww. But thank you so well, much. I'm for, sorry, Mum. <laughs> but thank you. No, I appreciate what you're doing, and I think um, it's so important to have these conversations. And it's, it's also important to be vulnerable and talk about Absolutely. what has affected us negatively because how can other people know that they're not alone if they think they're the only one experiencing it? So I think... And that's the brave part. Yeah, it is. And not to yeah. give up. Probably a bit selfish as well, I think. Maybe if I tell you all, you'll be nicer to me. I don't know. It's a bit of, <laughs> bit of everything. But anyway, um, it's been such I a joy talking to you. I'm so sorry yeah, I've had limited time. but um, Thank you so much for um, just sharing so openly and vulnerably. And, yes, I reckon we're going to have to do another one or at least catch up and, and yes, chat more. Yes, absolutely. love your spirit. Oh, I only just all started. Right. I haven't talked about the First Nations songwriting stuff I yet, know, which is incredible. Like, that's so much to talk about. <laughs> Um, we'll do it again yeah all right yeah let's catch up properly soon okay great see you Dom. thank you bye. bye bye
so much for joining our Songwriter Truth podcast today with Sue Ray, an incredible artist, so appreciative, and maybe we will do our first ever Songwriter Truth part two, who knows. Let us know if you'd like to know, and if you want to find out any more information about the podcast, this one, or any of the other artists that have been on the show, check out the website, songwritertruths.com. Lost in the crowd, no one can